very clear that testing is not the panacea and will not protect the workplace. And as we've talked about before, the only foolproof method for preventing serious infection and hospitalizations in the workplace is for everyone who enters that physical space to be vaccinated. Welcome to the Rain Insights on COVID-19 podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks with doctors Fred Southwick and Bill Lang for our weekly coronavirus update. Bill and Fred, as always, a great privilege and thanks for making time. This has been an eventful week. Um, there seem to be a, some sea changes here in terms of the advice and guidance around a third vaccine and the need for it, plus continuing data, um, talking about hot spots around the country, and obviously the overflow of intensive care units. Uh, maybe we'll start with you, Bill, just in terms of what you're seeing nationally and globally with respect to the data. Well, nationally, it's continuing to do as everyone expected, which is continuing up through August. Um, if you look at the curve, you could the national epidemiologic curve, you could convince yourself that it may be starting to flatten out, but you'd have to be uh, being hopeful in saying that. As you look around at a few states, Florida looks like maybe it's starting to flatten out. Texas, one of the, the other um, more hard-hit states, is not at all flattening out. It's still continuing. So you, know, you really can't say that we've started to turn the corner yet, but nothing is it has been projecting that we will be turning the corner yet. It's going to be at best casing over the next couple of weeks. And importantly, a couple of the very well-respected models, including the um, Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at University of, at University of Washington and the, uh, the major uh, modeling center at University of Florida, have both projected that we should be maxing out right around Labor Day. Um, uh, there are other models that don't agree with that, but those are two of the two of the most widely followed models in the United States, and both of them have a, you know, a, a max out over the next couple of weeks. Now, but as we've said all along, this is not a single epidemic for the United States or a single pandemic for the world. You have to look at each individual region. And if you look at the United States right now, you know, case rates are ranging from, um, you know, in, in the 70s, per 100,000 per day in places like Georgia and Tennessee, um, down to the, uh, let's see, Maine is 12 cases per 100,000 per day, which of note is the only state that still meets the uh, CDC criteria for not being in in the higher risk groups. When you look at rates of increase, the rates of increase range from doubling cases in West Virginia over the last week down to, you know, now we've got um, six states uh, that are actually have case rates coming down. So including one of the most hard hit, which is Louisiana. Um, so so it, it does have the sense that that we may be getting towards the peak, but we're, we're certainly not there yet. In the United Kingdom, um, you know, we are so one of the things that I've been looking at so much was that they the eight weeks up and then they started to come down. Well, they came down for about three weeks and then they plateaued. And the plateau has not been a flat plateau. They actually are creeping back up again. Not a lot of good understanding of why the, 
that uh, the UK is plateauing. In Europe, uh, Europe over the last eight weeks, they had a, the first four weeks had a pretty steady upturn as they started to deal with Delta. But then for the past month, they've been almost completely flat. Now, there've been a lot of, there's been a lot of variability within the countries of Europe. Um, specifically, the one country that had been doing very well was Germany, but Germany has had almost a doubling of cases uh, over the last week. Fred, you're you're obviously in, in, at the epicenter um, in Florida, and I know you have been in the wards. Um, I, we'd love to hear your perspectives of uh, what's happening and why it's so important to observe vaccinations as well as mask wearing. Yes, uh, well, David and, and Bill, uh, Bill, an excellent summary, by the way. In Florida, the problem has been as we've talked about before, the very low vaccination rate in the rural communities uh, in northeastern uh, or northern Florida in particular, and the uh, mandate by the governor that says that no local community or school can mandate masks. As a consequence of these uh, behaviors, the levels are in one one county, Columbia County, right next to us. There are 210 per 100,000 on a daily basis. That is as high as been recorded anywhere in the U.S. at any time. And our own county is about at 82 per 100,000. And a lot of the other surrounding counties are between 110 and 120 per 100,000. This is infection completely out of control. And uh, the, I can tell you that our hospital had uh, yesterday 230 cases. Our, our bed capacity is about 900, so roughly a quarter, uh, maybe a little bit more. And the worrisome part is over 60 to 70 beds are MICU, uh, medical intensive care unit. So these patients are very, very sick. And we're seeing that the, most of them are under age 50, some, the age range is 30 to 50 that are ending up in the MICU. And again, as everybody has noted before, the majority, a high percentage, somewhere in the 94% range, are unvaccinated. Yeah, as, as I've mentioned before, um, my group takes care of a large number of um, hourly level workers across the state of Florida. And it's it's been somewhat surprising and concerning to us what a, a low percentage of those workers are are vaccinated. Um, we've been working closely with the company uh, that employs most of these people and trying to, the company is actually working to encourage vaccination, but there is a huge amount of resistance. Apropos that, Bill and Fred, I try to listen to all the voices and the two pegs that um, people who are against uh being vaccinated and who are filing court challenges, number one, they keep pointing to the fact that the FDA uh, has not approved the vaccine yet. And we, we spoke a little bit about that in the last week or two. And why is it taking so long? Because as both of you have noted, we have more data on this vaccine than any other vaccine in history. And then number two, they point to the fact that um, people who have antibodies already, maybe because they're, you know, they had COVID once before, or maybe they have natural immunities. 
but they they are stating that they should not have to be vaccinated and they're pushing up against various institutions and government agencies that are requiring this. So my question to you is, number one, where is the FDA? Number two, you know, is there a legitimate medical argument based upon antibodies? And I guess three, and somewhat uh, uh, relatedly, uh, people are stating that they're willing to be tested on a regular basis uh, in lieu of being vaccinated. And how would you deal with those arguments? Because I know within the enterprises we work with, uh, corporate leaders, government agency leaders are hearing all of the above. Well, let me address the, the testing issue. Um, you know, from early on, the the consideration of, of testing to, to make locations somewhat uh, less risky has been a has been used by many organizations. Um, the problem is that we know the tests are not perfect, um, and what is happening now with this this new uh, uh, wave we're having with Delta is that the tests that were becoming fairly easy to obtain are once again becoming harder to obtain. Um, we've used. With some of the organizations we work with, we've used test testing as a screen, and it's it has been problematic. Both from we don't think from a significant standpoint of false negatives. Of course, you don't always know what you don't know, um, but we've we've unfortunately continued to have what appear to be false positives, and that will have positive screens with the uh, and with the antigen tests. And then never develop symptoms, and they they're negative on antibody tests. And so, what's happening is people are losing faith in the tests. So I, I'm just I'm concerned about trying to to test test around um, not getting vaccinated because of the problems that tests are not perfect. Yeah, I, I completely would agree with Bill in this case. We had an example in the hospital of all our patients when they are admitted are screened with a, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 RT-PCR, and a patient was negative, came into a two-bed ward, uh, then infected the, the our patient uh, next to that individual. And what happened probably is that it was very early in the infection before the PCR turned positive. And when you have a very high prevalence, such as we have with about 100 per 100,000, um, you're going to get people that will sneak through the screen, uh, not by any fault of their own. They will be asymptomatic, and yet they'll they'll have early early infection, and then subsequently in the next day or two become very heavy as far as the amount of virus in their nasal passages. So I, I it's very clear to me that testing is not the panacea and will not protect the workplace. Uh, it will not be foolproof. And as we've talked about before, remember that this, the Delta variant, has a R sub naught reproductive rate of between six and eight, the equivalent of chickenpox. So therefore, and the other thing we know is the 80-20 rule. 20% of the people cause 80% of the infections. What that means is that one individual on average who is infectious can infect somewhere between 20 and 40 individuals. So if one of those people breaks through your screen, they can infect the entire office. So the only foolproof method for preventing serious infection and hospitalizations in the workplace is for everyone who enters that physical space to be vaccinated. With regards to the vaccine, 
I have been practicing infectious disease for over 35 years. This vaccine is the safest and most effective vaccine that I have encountered in my career. And uh, Bill mentioned the la- in our last podcast, I believe, and he can speak to this in greater detail. The f- uh, final approval requires going to all the manufacturing sites and prove that their methods are effective and safe. And that takes a lot of time. The data on the safety of the vaccine from the standpoint of individuals getting a long-term side effects is overwhelmingly positive. That is, there are very, very few side effects. But what I'm hearing and reading about is that individuals, uh, patients who are against taking the vaccine, uh, have heard on social media that someone had a terrible side effect and therefore they're not gonna take this, quote, experimental vaccine. And so we are, uh, the reason we have these giant upsurges is because of that focus on one little negative event instead of focusing on the tremendous protective efficacy of this vaccine. When you look at risk psychology, it's been well shown over the years that people value the risks of a positive action, meaning they go get get a shot, a shot has risks. Those risks are magnified in people's minds compared to the risks of not doing anything. So they the risk of just going about your business and risking getting infected is not given as much weight in someone's mind as the risks, small though that they are, associated with, with making a decision to get a vaccine. So a lot of it is the educational process to talk about the competing risks. So when people make a risk versus risk, benefit versus benefit decision, they really are uh, tr- comparing apples to apples and not these apples to, well, they're not even oranges. They're, I don't know what they are. They're watermelons. Um, so that's where, that's where things stand on that. The, the other issue with the, the timing of the approval of the FDA vaccines, they now have six months from the middle of last month until they have to approve it. Um, they required to have six months six months of data. They'll they will have six months of data, much more than six months, and lots of lots of data. Um, but it's still a matter of these things are being manufactured in multiple different locations. And as Fred said, that just takes a, takes a lot of time because they have to prove not just good manufacturing processes, but that they are in compliance with all of the various FDA uh, standards. Um, if we look at the uh, Novavax vaccine that everybody that I've read about thinks is going to be um, not a game changer, but it is going to it's going to have a huge impact around the world. That has not yet even received its authorization, not because of any concerns about safety or efficacy, but concerns about being able to demonstrate that they are in com- full compliance with good manufacturing processes. And that's not even as stringent as they have to do to get full approval versus authorization. So let me just go back, and and I have a a great deal of sympathy and empathy for everything that, you know, the government is going through. Uh, I'm just thinking, and, and, you know, Fred, you're right, and Bill, you know, social media, disinformation, isolated, you know, incidents, urban legends, everything flies, plus a lot of people are trying to make money off of this. But the bottom line and you know from the public standpoint 
This is about the inspection of the facilities where these drugs are being manufactured. They have the safety data. Uh, the vaccines have been out broadly for six plus months. I just hate to give sort of uh, a convenient rationale, which people are latching onto, about FDA approval. So is there something the government, and both of you guys know this, is there something the government could be doing that perhaps it's not doing for additional resources or the diversion of resources to tick the right boxes that are necessary to give you know the final approval to the FDA? And by the way, Bill, I was particularly uh, taken with your remark, um, I think a couple of weeks ago, where you mentioned that uh, a number of personnel at the FDA have been diverted to accelerate the approval process, which means that the review and approval process for other drugs may be delayed greatly as a result of COVID and, and, and the, these various vaccines. And so um, both of you are professionals, and I don't mean this as a criticism of the government, but just in terms of prioritization. Does the FDA need more resources? Does the FDA need more personnel? Are there people that perhaps they could bring in? Um, is there something that can both accelerate the process and keep the agency from robbing Peter to pay Paul? And I may have missed it, Bill, but uh, I looked at the infrastructure bill. Uh, it didn't seem to have uh, a great deal of focus around uh, potential future pandemic risk or the you know resources that the FDA needs. Well, David, I don't think the infrastructure would, bill would probably be the place where they will be putting preventive medicine and public health dollars. Bill, bill I, I won't go political with you, but there's a lot in there that, you know, infrastructure, <laughs> right. infrastructure is, is, is now it's the Uber category. Okay. No, you're right. You're right. So yes, it could be there. I think what right now, I would bet you that the, um, the budgeteers within these various organizations, you know, they're up to their neck and alligators. And so putting in play, trying to plan for the future is probably a, a bridge too far for them right now because they're trying to you know, pay for the present. When they're having to, again, uh, uh, steal from Peter to pay Paul with the current approvals and thereby delaying other things, bringing online the personnel with the right degree of training to be able to work drug and vaccine approvals is not something that you could turn on in the t period of time that we have to do that right now. So unfortunately, I don't think this is just a matter of going out and hiring more people. It's hiring the right people. And uh, the people with the expertise are most likely involved, already involved in development. So it would be a matter of the, of the government having to grow these capabilities, which they haven't done, done yet. Yeah, David and Bill, there's another issue here. I, I think uh, a lot of people are using this as cover. In other words, they're saying they don't want to do it when it is approved they'll come up with another excuse. And this is, a, uh, after reading multiple newspaper articles on how people are justifying not taking the vaccine, uh, it's so, and, and doctors actually talking to patients multiple times and patients continuing to refuse, I, I just don't see a way around mandating this vaccine or making it so inconvenient for someone that's not vaccinated that they just throw up their hands. Well, if I want to be part of the, of the community, part of life, 
part of uh, going to work and physically going to work, I will uh, have to go along with the vaccine. I think that's the only way we're ever going to achieve herd immunity and get a substantial number of those that are refusing to actually get vaccinated. Fred, with what you said, I I agree that that we can put restrictions and various kinds of difficulties in place, not to put the difficulties in place, to put real, how do we protect people? So those become a consequence for not getting a vaccine. I'm still personally would be very uncomfortable with with mandating vaccine, but I'm not at all uncomfortable with mandating obstacles, so to speak, that that to protect the people who are vaccinated from those who have chosen not to be vaccinated. Okay. And this may be just the lawyer in me. Fred, I couldn't agree with you more. People will come up with another excuse. Uh, But I'm just referencing uh, the ability to remove even colorable claims in the lawsuits that are being filed, number one. Number two, um, Bill, it's a little bit nuanced, but the difference between requiring it and saying, if you're going to come back to work, um, you must be vaccinated. Otherwise, we'll deal with some kind of remote condition or we'll we'll figure this out uh, is pretty much, I think, the needle that people are trying to thread. In the few minutes uh, we have remaining, there are two topics that were certainly important in the minds of many of our listeners and in the network. Number one is the third vaccine and um, what will be recommended and, you know, your advice and what you're seeing from the data. And then finally, uh, again, this just goes back. We've talked about this. There is real concern out there, and I guess rightfully so, Fred, because you're talking about the number of young people or now being uh, admitted into the intensive care wards. What can people do to protect their children? And I know Pfizer is trying to test, you know, even younger children and and get the vaccine out uh, to them. But basically, what are you recommending for 12 and over? And what are you recommending for families as well uh, in terms of the kids who are, particularly who are returning to school? But why don't we start with the third booster or the third vaccine. A couple of key points about the third vaccine is the first is that this has not yet been authorized by the the FDA, um, nor has the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices put out a um, guidelines for utilization. Very unusual for the White House to get out in front of those two actions. Um, They have to happen, legally have to happen uh, before uh, before they, we can start a third vac- a third dose program. Um, and it's kind of surprising that, that the White House is doing that. I think part of what it is is there's been so much confusion over the third dose that is authorized for the people who have significant immunocompromised conditions. And there's a whole very specific list of those. And I think because that created that has created so much confusion for people that the White House felt like they needed to get out in front of that with saying, "Okay, everybody can get it beginning next month. So the the second major point is that the only vaccines have been authorized for a third for the mRNA vaccine. So Pfizer and Moderna, Um, a lot of sources are saying that J&J will have the same indication but the White House did not go so far as to say that J&J needs to have a, a second dose, although J&J itself has been saying that their data is looking that way internally. So it's unclear um, why the White House, since they are already 
announcing a not yet authorized uh, treatment, why didn't they do that also with J&J? And I think it may be that the White House is a little bit more concerned with the the issues with clots primarily in women of childbearing age with the J&J, and they don't want to get in front of the the medical community saying, okay, here's the appropriate way to use that. Um, and then the third thing is that all of this is based on findings regarding antibody levels and how they decrease over time. And the way they, the White House has come up with, and, and I, hopefully the FDA and the um, Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, um, the way they've come up with the eight months is that if you take look across the population, that is where the, the greatest flexion in the curve is in the decrease in antibody levels is at about eight months. Most people, even with that decrease in, um, in antibody levels, will still remain above a protective level. But there are a certain number that will not, and there's no way to know who will and who will not. The one thing, uh, the CDC uh, actually saw some studies from Israel and the UK, which showed actually from an epidemiologic point that uh, those that had had the vaccine eight months before were more likely to get a breakthrough infection uh, due to the Delta variant. And and the Delta variant, really because of the uh, doses of virus are 100 to 1,000 fold higher than the original virus, um, is a real acid test for the vaccine. And what they're seeing is the higher your titers were at the time you're exposed, the more likely you are to be protected. Therefore, having a third booster at eight months would rise those titers and increase the likelihood that you be protected more effectively to the Delta variant. With regards to, and that is humoral immunity, antibodies, um, and they are only part of the question. And the humoral uh, IgA is probably the most important when it comes to protecting against uh, carrying the virus in the nasal passages. And IgA levels are, are aren't measured very often, and they do go down more quickly. So what happens with the IgG and IgM, which are what usually are measured, uh, probably the same thing is going on even more so for IgA. And that's, so that's one of the thoughts. But it, with regards to cell-mated immunity, that is your T cells and your B cells responding to the antigen, um, they are likely to have very prolonged responsiveness. And that comes from a study of, of patients that were infected with the SARS-CoV-1 in 2003, were studied in 2019, where actually their cells were exposed to the uh, SARS-CoV-2, and they found as far as cell-mated response, it was still very powerful. So, um, there is going to be some protection. It won't be as good as if you got that booster. So I think the booster is helpful, probably not absolutely necessary from the standpoint of protecting against hospitalization and death, but certainly uh, helpful with protecting against mild to moderate disease. I think it's going to have a big impact there. And finally, the J&J, the problem with the J&J, there just isn't data. That's why we can't make any decisions about it. Uh, based on what I know and the little data we have, it makes perfect sense that they should get uh, a second, uh, one booster, um, either Moderna or Pfizer, and they will have very high titers than uh, antibody titers if they do that. And that makes the most sense to me. But again, there isn't enough data to be definitive on this. 
Well, well, and that's and Fred, you touched on the one other thing that I wanted to mention is that all of this is saying that you should be getting the same. You should get the same uh, vaccine that you got the first time. So if you got Pfizer, you should get a third dose of Pfizer. If you got um, a J, uh, uh, Moderna, you should get a third dose of Moderna. But the data that's out there, like you're saying, this this as they call it, the heterogeneous, where you're actually mixing it. There's pretty good data from Europe and Israel and, and the UK. It says that that mixing the doses up may be even better. So I'm hoping that over the next month, before we start this program, we may have more information on that because it may be better that you you mix things up a little bit, um, and, and we just we just don't know the answer to that. I agree that that is really quite impressive. And if you had the J and J followed by Moderna or Pfizer, you got higher antibody levels than getting two Moderna doses or two Pfizer doses. So I, I think it's a great strategy, and I, I, I see no downside in it. Um, and then the, the one other concern that I have that hopefully we'll have answered over the, the next month, or I shouldn't say this is a concern, the one other question I have is that we know that both Pfizer and Moderna, at least Pfizer and Moderna, are working on a slightly modified vaccine that would specifically address the more concerning variants, Delta being one of the main ones. And we, do we want to really be putting a lot of time and effort in giving people a third dose of the same vaccine when maybe just around the corner is a more tailored vaccine that would be, we do that in place of the third dose. And I, I would really love to see that answered before, you know, what, what the timeline is looking before we start vaccinating millions of people uh, beginning September 20th. Sorry, I had trouble getting off mute. So um, I'll make one comment, and because we've focused throughout the weeks on disinformation out there, uh, there are people who heard the White House announcement, I don't have to tell you guys, who heard, who heard very clearly a third vaccine. And Bill, while you know certain approvals and other bodies may opine, People heard that, and I can tell you anecdotally, uh, some people, because of the the now availability of the vaccine and the fact that not a lot of questions are being asked, there are people who went right to their CVC or their Walgreens and got a third vaccine. And what, you know, what this may be, at least anecdotally, a reminder of, is there really has to be one voice and and authorities that people can trust uh, because they're going to respond to what they hear uh, on both sides. The advice you now have for children uh, 12 and over, any issues with their taking the vaccine in your views, and then 12 and under, any additional steps that families should be taking? I, I have no issues with the 12 and overs. Um, they should be getting the the safety the safety profile for the pediatric population is has even been better than the adult safety profile. So I have no issues whatsoever with twelve year olds up to up to eighteen year olds um, and older, of course, getting getting vaccinated as soon as possible. Yeah, I agree. the 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 number of myocarditis cases has been very very low, maybe two per million, three per million. And almost all the cases are completely reversible. So that was the one minor holdup. And as far as efficacy, uh, the the study showed 100% protection against mild to moderate disease with uh, those 
between 12 and 16. So it's very, very effective for that group. And then of course, below the age of 12, uh, masks are so very important. And uh, we are actually undergoing an experiment as we speak uh, in Florida, uh, because our governors decided to ignore uh, the germ theory. And for those that don't remember the germ theory, a pastor, Cook uh, and Lister actually were responsible for theorizing that a particle that could not be seen uh, under normal eyes, in other words, you can only see it by a microscope, was responsible for causing diseases. They didn't even have the word infection at that time for causing infection. And from that uh, original uh, theory came the idea of uh, disinfectants, of pasteurization, of vaccination, and of wearing masks. And initially it was insurgents had to wear masks so they wouldn't spew these microorganisms onto wounds and or surgical wounds and cause infection, subsequently to prevent person-to-person -person spread. So what is going on is our governor and Governor Abbott are actually denying the germ theory. We are going back to pre-1860 uh, right now. And the consequence has been, and those schools have opened. There are some school districts that have over 4,000 in quarantine and hundreds who have become infected in the first few days of school. So a number of our local districts now are, are actually uh, ignoring the governor who, who dis said you cannot mandate masks. They are mandating masks and their school boards are mandating masks with the threat from the governor that they will be fired. You know, the understanding that there are a there are large numbers of people out there who who allege without necessarily a lot of science that masks, especially with Delta, may not be as beneficial because the Delta uh, particles just go around the the typically cheap masks or go through the typically cheap masks that people use. Well, okay, fine, but then as as Fred said. We're going to have a lot of data pretty damn quick on that. And then the, the issue is going to be that will the various policymakers look at this new data and, and say, maybe I was wrong, or maybe the data will support their position. But in any event, let's let's get the data and look at it. But I, I think in the end, I think that the that Fred will be exactly right. Um, and it's just going to be a matter of will these policymakers decide that they'll they will listen to the data. Okay, and uh, look, nothing drives home a point quicker, as, as Fred had, has said from his work in the wards, as people who resisted taking it, contracting it. Some, some of those same people, Fred, uh, end up going out publicly and explaining that they were wrong, and they're probably some of the best messengers for, you know, getting people to take the vaccine. I want to thank you both. We'll await details from the next week. Stay safe and well. And again, Fred and Bill, can't thank you enough. Thank you, David. Have a good weekend. Dr. Bill Lang is an expert in public health responses to biological incidents, including pandemics. Dr. Fred Southwick is an infectious disease specialist at the University of Florida College of Medicine. Both doctors are part of the RAIN Expert Network. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. 
Sign up for our coronavirus solution and get critical information on the COVID-19 pandemic delivered daily. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.